Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason. Are you gonna love them or hate them? Here comes the binge. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Binge, in which a couple of homos review the latest streaming releases. I'm Jason Leroy. And I'm Rebecca Olarte, and we have four movies for you today. The Old Guard, Mucho Mucho More, The Rental, and Relic. And as always, we're going to rate these movies on a three-tiered scale, with Binge it being our highest rating. Consumer moderation means it's okay, but it's kind of meh. And send it back means... Quarantine is too short for that mess. 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 Yeah, hard to say. I mean, I guess it varies by what country you're in, right? Because yeah, it's true. Because since uh, the U.S. has failed so spectacularly to have a uniform response in flattening the curve, ours will just go on indefinitely for the rest of our lives. Yeah, uh, in which case, we have time for all kinds of things, really. Um, but, you know, if you are outside the U.S. listening to this, then life might be too short for some of these movies because you get to go and do things again. So good on you. <laughs> I was uh, talking to a coworker who lives in Dublin, and he was saying on Friday that he is going out to dinner with, with his uh, husband for the first time. Um, <sighs> he like, sent the link to the restaurant, and we were like, oh, look at that, duck confit. <laughs> I guess I never really knew what that was to begin with, but now I'm jealous. <laughs> I don't know what duck confit is, but God damn it, I want the right to have it if I want it. I'm guessing it's not a Red Baron pizza that I had for dinner last night. <laughs> I went for a walk around through the Castron mission yesterday, and it's actually insane how many places are doing curbside uh, service right now. Like, have full-on tables and chairs set up, um, people eating and drinking. Uh, it was wild to see because I definitely have been more of a hermit with this whole thing. Mm. Um, like I am not one who's testing the waters or being like, well, I bet this is probably safe. Um, you mm. know, I have just been staying inside and only leaving the house to like get groceries. So, uh, to go outside and see how many people have kind of moved on to like, you know, sort of like sidewalk al fresco dining is kind of nuts, especially because all their masks are off because they're right. eating and drinking. That's the thing. It's the eating and drinking. That's the problem. Yeah. Well, not, I don't know if it's a problem. I don't know. But that's <laughs> I mean, the thing that scares me. me about it, right? It's like, okay, let's go to a place with people, which feels fine if everyone's wearing masks. But if the whole point of being there is to take your mask off, I don't know. Can yeah. you just have like a, give me a little straw. I'll pop it through the bottom of my mask. I know. Oh, I guess we don't do straws now. See, that was. Uh... <laughs> that's so funny. I said that to someone yesterday while we were, I was walking around with my friend Ian. And we, I was like, why isn't there just like a mask with a little straw hole yet? So that, you know, we can right. just kind of handle it that way. I feel like that's an, a great invention if it doesn't exist already. Um, but yeah, it was it was an interesting but also a discouraging walk because then we walked through um, Dolores Park um, where people are by and large doing the whole, you know, like they're in the, the little circles, the white circles that are for social distancing. But like nobody had a mask on at all. Really? The park was jam-packed and nobody was wearing a mask. And it was so bizarre because on the periphery of the park, just people walking around the sidewalks, everybody had one on. But it felt like people, for some reason, think the park is just like a free zone. Because once you're there, then you're just like, <laughs> okay, cool. We're in the park now. Mask off. Like, what the fuck are you doing? It was, it was, it was, yeah. I feel, you know, I've been so demoralized by California's numbers because we were so good about this in the beginning. Um, and I've been so confused, like, why are we doing so badly now? I know it's mainly because LA reopened everything too quickly in June. Um, but then I like, well, actually you can leave the house and walk around. I'm like, oh, that's why, because people mm. are really not being, uh, very diligent about this. People are not being very disciplined. And San Francisco is so windy. I feel like, um, you just, when you see those like animations of what happens when you speak, and, and like how far your breath goes and, and all the droplets within it and, and just being like out in like the wind. I don't know. <laughs> that all sounds very upsetting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so not a not a cheerful beginning to the show. So we can move on past that. Uh, and uh, so to keep in mind that uh, our, 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 our ratings for the films and what life is too short for vary on your location. Right. Um, so shall we then? Let's get into it. Let's start with uh, movie number one, which is The Old Guard. A covert team of immortal mercenaries are suddenly exposed and must now fight to keep their identity a secret, just as an unexpected new member is discovered. The Old Guard is uh, a Netflix streaming movie. Um, I think we're trying to keep some 
some service streams in there as well as some VOD streams for folks who kind of have those because you know, it does add up when they're all VODs after a while, um, which I guess was the same as going to the movies. But here we are. <laughs> this is uh, Charlize Theron, and it's directed by Gina Prince-Bythewood. Mm-hmm. Uh, who previously directed Love and Basketball, and then a personal favorite of the binge, Beyond the Lights. Beyond uh, the Lights. Oof. With our girl, Gugu Mbatha Rao. Mm. Such a great movie. Uh, and uh, so, and this is very much, uh, could be viewed as a surprising choice for uh, Gina Prince-Bythewood to take on, uh, given that her uh, oof so far has been uh, serve these just beautiful, intimate, character-driven pieces. And now, you know, she is helming uh, a giant, big-budget Netflix action film. Uh, and Based on a know, comic book. Based on comic book series, which I'm told is very popular. And uh, and I guess that she, from what I was, from what I gather, she had been working on developing a different um, sort of comic book adaptation movie that fell apart. But she directed the pilot episode of Cloak and Dagger, which is a Marvel mm. uh, TV series, to sort of like show her, you know, bona fides for this kind of material. And uh, and then she got this uh, this opportunity to make this movie, which is uh, which is pretty incredible. I feel like you can you can you can get her her sort of personality coming through in some of this. Uh, she is she has been credited as being the first ever Black woman to direct a superhero movie. Mm. Uh, although it's worth pointing out that the writer of the comic books, who also wrote the screenplay, disagrees with calling it black. No, he disagrees with calling uh, it a superhero movie uh, because to him, he he uh, he calls it a uh, a fairy tale. Uh, mm. He says he he feels like you know we have this uh, you know this kind of weird. Uh, uh, pop culture vernacular shorthand to characterize any story in which the characters are not strictly human as superhero. Mm. Um, and he's like, you know, would we call Lord of the Rings superhero? No. Um, but because, you know, this is based on a comic book, people go to superhero and, you know, he's like, and I feel like that's unnecessarily reductive. Mm. Uh, so, so there he came in just taking away her credit right off the bat. <laughs> sabotage him inside the production <laughs> wait so did he say that like in particularly in response to her it hurt yeah. that or in just and also his view of the movie in terms of it being called superhero yeah i was reading an interview with him on vulture and uh and they uh, and yeah he was just talking about he's like yeah i keep seeing people describe it as a superhero movie and I, that's okay that's not what it, is. it wasn't it wasn't like i keep hearing her being called no. first. okay good. <laughs> he's like let me tell you she directed this is not historic this is not special uh no no, no. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah no 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 um so no he's just pointing out that he isn't a superhero but um but regardless um you know i one of the things that she um that i think that she she did respond to uh is the fact that when this this guy i think his name is greg uh rucka uh when he was doing his drafts of the script um the um the production uh heads point out to him that the character of niall played by kiki lane from a field street could talk um that she essentially had like no character um and that she had no impact in the story whatsoever um, and, uh, and so they went back and did what he called like the Nile draft. And mm. then that is, and that's what really sparked Gina's interest, um, you know, was that they had developed this black female character to be much more substantial and impactful on the story than even in his comics. So he was, he was able to sort of eat crow and be humble and be like, okay, I see, I see what you're saying and you're correct. I had not given this character enough of an arc previously. Wow. Uh, so I think that that's part of what. Uh, sparked her interest and and certainly the Kiki Lane character in this is more than just a character is is more than just the audience surrogate mm-hmm. uh, which is very helpful I mean given given kind of how difficult it is at first to sort of wrap your head around this mythology of these other four of, of the old guard as we meet them um, it's very helpful but it's it's her character was my favorite part of the movie I would say um, it's interesting that I mean I guess I, I guess I don't know what how like superheroes defined I, I think a lot a lot of this movie kind of the the crux of it is when the characters are shown the impact that they've had on the world and the good that they've done and that and also like their their whole 
uh, motivation for, you know, getting together, being together for these these lifetimes has been to do the right thing and fight for good. So it it, it seems like in that way that would be uh, that they are superheroes, uh, uh, that they are heroes, and then they also have these kind of, you know, otherworldly powers. So uh, that seems right. super. Um, <laughs> but they I mean, are super and they are heroes. This much is true. I don't really have enough of a, I guess, a dog in the race to really <laughs> care about that one. Uh, this movie is, uh, it's wild. Um, man, representation matters. It matters. There is something that I cannot even describe in words right now that I felt watching this movie. That mm-hmm. just, I, I wish this would have existed when I was growing up. I'm excited for for folks, you know, younger than me, people of color, queer people to to see this this movie two of the main characters are are in a queer relationship how did you feel watching that jason um i felt and let me just also while you're thinking they're (laughs) in a uh cis gay male uh interracial relationship yes yes they are um, yeah, I, I thought that it was certainly, I was, I was impressed at first because I didn't know that going into the movie that that was going to be uh, a storyline. So I think on some level, I was definitely like, huh, well, how about that? Uh, that is, that is something I've not seen before in a, in a major action movie. Um, and then after that, I just went straight to being resentful of them still being so happy after spending hundreds of thousands of years together. So, <laughs> so I, I, I did not spend much time glorying in the representation. I just went straight to resentment. Um, oh, so. no. <laughs> That's really unfortunate. And, uh, but, it's uh, unapologetic in the showing of their relationship. It is like, uh, you know, showing them sleep together, it's not over-sexualizing them, but it does showing them kissing it shows them um doing it and there's a scene where they they kiss in front of uh this group of soldiers that that are trying to restrain them that are like kind of you know being uh like teasing them in like a homophobic way like what is it your boyfriend and then he gives this huge speech about how he's like the love of his eternal life and then they they make out and it's just like it is i think there was some cheering going on on my couch i have to admit something i hated that speech so much I mean, I, yeah, it was totally cheesy, but that's who the character is. He's like this like cheesy, um, you know, oh, uh, emotional. The cheesy, ones, the cheesy ones are the ones that survive somehow. Maybe it's because <laughs> positivity really does keep you healthy. So that's, <laughs> you know, they're, they're a thousand years old. They've got great skin. Uh, apparently still getting it up. Good for them. Uh, but uh, yeah, that, that, <laughs> that speech was, I was like, well, someone please like pistol whip them so <laughs> this can end. So I was, I found myself on the side of the soldiers in that scene, but, uh, wow. but I was like, why are they letting him keep talking? Uh, that was, that was my reaction to that scene. <laughs> if anyone's curious how much of a romantic I am. Uh, so, but all the same. And, and the fact that it's on Netflix, I think tempered the, the, the quote unquote achievement a little bit for me because, you know, a Netflix movie is less than a theatrical movie mm. in terms of like, you know, you can just roll up to Netflix, watch whatever the fuck. Um, it's not like it's difficult to find queer content on Netflix or other streamers. Mm. Um, but certainly this has had, uh, according to Netflix's own count of their numbers, has had a, a historic watershed amount of people watching it. Um, and that's pretty remarkable. I mean, it's something that the movie doesn't hide it. It's it's like pretty obvious in the beginning. It has a natural progression about, you know, how you find out about these these uh, this relationship. But it's also like not at all in like visible from the trailer or from uh the cover art so you're watching this i think thinking that you're gonna watch this superhero action comic book movie and then it it puts it in there in a way that like i don't know makes you know what is what was the last uh marvel movie that had one of the russo brothers kind of alluding to the fact that we're in a therapy session like look pathetic right like this is what you could be doing Uh, Mm -hmm. i think it's it it serves as as a lesson for those uh for those films yeah, and I guess that scene with the speech is from the comic books, and that was something that Gina said that she was prepared to fight to the death to keep in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and she didn't say that she received any pushback on that, but she was just like, that for me was like a, a not negotiable thing that I needed to have in the, in, in my movie. Hmm. Uh, the movie does so, yeah, have that, a very Sense8 feel to it when you, when you it, think about Netflix. 
Yeah, it does. That's a good comparison because, like, watching it, I was like, this movie feels like a very has a very European mm-hmm. uh, kind of vibe to it, almost like a '90s European vibe. It felt very Luc Besson, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, and not just European because there's gay stuff, but you know, <laughs> European, <laughs> European in a somewhat more ineffable way. It is um, very American I mean, yeah. that it is very brutal. It is incredibly violent. Um, although there, even even the sort of the violence is so sort of balletic that it does start mm-hmm. to feel kind of you know European or Eastern in a sense. Uh, in that way, Speaking I, I once again, yes. Oh, go ahead. Uh, maybe you're maybe you're about to say this. Are we going to talk about Charlize Theron? action hero 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 Oof. i mean what can't she do her watching her i think the new york times actually just they ran a whole story about like why is it so satisfying to watch her throw a punch so good started in the lead to like to watch charlie's theron execute a fight sequence is like watching gene kelly dance like you're yeah. just watching complete master of the form um and it just gives you such delight and and shivers to watch her do it because she's just so goddamn good at it and she really is doing the vast majority of these scenes it's not a you know not a double being brought in to do all of it um and i think she she even alternates um her her schedule to not have to do these kinds of movies back to back just because it does take so much out of her physically because she's Mm. so committed to the train so i i i believe it Um, if i didn't have two more movies to watch in this list i would have watched atomic blonde right after this one I know. Uh, yeah, no, it's she's it's it's incredible. Um, the fight the, scene between her and Niall, uh, played by Kiki Lane in this airplane. Mm-hmm. I, oh, my God. The two of them like and it's, it's such a different kind of fighting, like whatever the uh, you know, the work that goes into choreographing this type of fighting, because we have uh, Kiki Lane, who his character was Niall is just just moments out of the military. So it's like a very kind of uh, I don't know. Uh, like short bursts like they're also you know different people she's very young um and it's like a very uh almost like like wrestling boxing type of fighting and then you have like Charlize Theron with these like times of thousands of years of different fighting styles uh, I don't know it's it was such a beautiful fight scene it was it was yeah I think the the fight scenes in general were overall my favorite part of the movie at least when any time that it was Charlize any of Charlize's fight scenes in this were my favorite part of the movie uh far and away the rest of the movie around the fight scenes I thought was kind of just okay uh you know like I, I felt like yeah I thought I felt I thought that it was just okay I thought that a lot of the dialogue was kind of stunted I thought the characterizations were kind of weak um so I think I, most of my fault would go to the screenplay. Uh, I feel like there was just maybe, it just didn't feel all the way developed. Um, it felt kind of surface in a way. Um, but but beyond that, you know, I thought that certainly the actors are the best with what they were given. It was directed with great style. Uh, the music choices are another place where, you know, you've got to feel Gina Prince-Bythewood's personality coming through. There's a lot more sort of like, contemporary r&b on the soundtrack than you would normally have mm. uh, oh there's a great like, frank ocean scene frank ocean uh so yeah the music choices felt also um very pointed uh and very uh sort of just inclusive so uh so those 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 aspects of her personality coming through it were were incredible and definitely just serve as a reminder how important it is to be inclusive behind the camera as well as in front of it the weakest part of the movie to me was the sort of um, the villain, the villain. Um, oh, my God. Dr. Merrick. Uh, so they're sort of uh, being hunted and captured by this pharmaceutical magnate who is kind of, you know, drawn up from like a Mark Zuckerberg type character of being like young, always in a hoodie um, and just like completely evil in a way yeah. that isn't nuanced at all there is uh another character uh with copley uh who is like a former cia uh director who you know gets involved and and is seen kind of as a villain but at least his his role has his character has more nuance about you know why he's why he does what he does but this um this mara character played by uh harry melling from harry potter movies right um i I didn't know who he was um, it's just too too much. I don't know. 
It was a very, very reductive one note villain. And it also did a thing that I really will never not hate in movies where you where the villain is always just the most unattractive person. Oh, yeah. Uh, in the movie. By uh, le- leaps and bounds. Leaps and bounds. Um, and yeah, he was just yeah, he was just meant to be a sort of like insufferable tech twat um who just wants what he wants and he wants it now and right, right. Uh, you know so i felt like i felt like the um yeah i think that 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 being the framework of the story in terms of introducing conflict was not worthy of the characters uh, like these mm-hmm. characters are so um they're so vast and they're so wise uh and they have seen and experienced so much and there are so many interesting kind of ideas rattling around about the impact that it's had on them, you know, like just like the mm-hmm. toll it's taken on them to have been alive for so long, the things they've had to give up in terms of their own families, um, the, the experiences that they've had, um, you know, when they when they have to take a life, um, what motivates them to to find these these sort of international incidents to intervene uh, during to fight for the cause of good throughout history, like it's so it's so massive and fascinating and then to have this just like one note piece of shit bond villain um who's just like immortal life interesting bring them to me exactly oh, like, so, i think that's know, an exact yeah. quote from the movie um <laughs> yeah even his like head bodyguards were far more attractive uh, than he was <laughs> they, yeah there, you know, there, there were some snacks and that security detail <laughs> i watched this with my with my partner and she was just like why is it in these movies it's a whole pharmaceutical lab and there's one <laughs> one scientist and five thousand militia guarding it there is one scientist in this whole movie <laughs> this, this woman assistant to his um yeah. insane but yeah it does feel it feels cheap to have these really uh rich important characters and if if it was like okay we sacrifice on the like boss story of the of the movie in order to tell the rest of it and then there's more movie coming up with uh you know some follow-ups with some better uh conflicts fine um but it was it was in it was a in contrast yeah a different movie yeah yeah uh so that that definitely kind of undermined it a bit and I know that it's it's certainly very plainly is setting up a sequel, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, because there and there is also this is one of those you know there's a there's a extra credit sequence uh, that very very firmly establishes that they you know want a sequel out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was reading an update on that today that like it's not it's not going to be one of those things like Netflix is going to be like surprise we already shot it. Um, like it has not been shot and it will probably be a while before they are able to shoot it, uh, for a variety of reasons, um, involving both COVID and then also just Charlize's schedule. Uh, so, but you have to do Telly too first (laughs) to reset her body. Yeah. She has to, she already shot Atomic Blonde too, and then Telly too, and then back to this. So she's (laughs) a few few returns and then back to Megan Kelly and then back to this. (laughs) (laughs) Megan Kelly. I forgot about that. She yeah. really is something else, man. Charlize Theron is something else. She is she is a one of a kind A lister that just takes interesting projects and makes interesting choices with her performances and is never not entrancing when she's mm-hmm. on screen. There is this part of the movie when they're showing like one of her uh, backstories where she had is fighting in this sort of like Asian conflict in what seems like maybe I don't know this 1600s is like I guess um, and it was just like okay well this is the Mulan we got <laughs> <laughs> you know sometimes you don't get the Mulan you want you get the Mulan you need and so. that's, <laughs> that's the one we got <laughs> oh my god there is some yeah. like hilarious photoshopping of them in historical photos <laughs> that like <laughs> if I didn't me up every time. love this movie so much I it would have like maybe found upsetting but I I just I found it endearing <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah that was that was that was hysterical um so yeah I, I guess I would say overall for this one um 
you know, there are some aspects of it that I really enjoyed so much, but there are other aspects of it that were just super half-baked. So for me overall, it's a consume. Oh, Jason, this is a binge. This is a, an absolute binge. I think that like, you know, we talk so much about represent- representation and there are, are some weak elements in the movie, but they're not, I don't know, to me, they don't break, you know, what is, uh, what the story is saying. The, the, I feel like the movie has, the story has such good intent um, the acting is, is amazing. The fight scenes. This is, this is a binge it. This is almost like a, I don't know. We're giving binge it pluses. Is that a thing? Go uh, right ahead. <laughs> this is, I haven't been so like just cheering a movie from the couch uh, as much as I, I have this one in, in a long time. Um, it's, uh, streaming on Netflix and it's rated R for graphic violence and language. That is to, to say there it is pretty violent it is pretty pretty gnarly even though you know the wounds heal when they happen they are gnarly they are very gnarly uh so just a little heads up on that one um moving on to a very non-violent movie uh the second movie of the week is mucho mucho amor once the world's most famous astrologer walter mercado seeks to resurrect a forgotten legacy raised in the sugarcane fields of puerto rico Walter grew up to become a gender nonconforming, cape-wearing psychic whose televised horoscopes reached 120 million Latinx viewers a day for 30 years before he mysteriously disappeared. You can go. I'm, I'm recovering from that <laughs> long intro. Okay. Uh, so I guess we can start with talking about if we were familiar with Walter Mercado before watching this, and if so, how familiar? I was not uh, at all. Not at all, huh? Mm-hmm. You? Never heard. I, I, I knew the name, and I had seen him before. And then most recently, uh, the reason that I he was top of mind, and this was probably true for some of our listeners as well, is on the season of uh, RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars that just concluded, uh, when they hit the Snatch Game Challenge, which is a celebrity impression challenge, uh, a queen named Alexis Mateo chose to be Walter Mercado. Uh, so, so it's very, very top of mind. Uh, so Walter Mercado was sort of just sort of coincidentally having this moment, uh, because these were not coordinated that this documentary became the, you know, a sensation on Netflix, right? At the same time that Alexis, um, introduced Walter to, you know, the millions of people around the world, especially young people who are watching Drag Race. So, uh, it's, and it's, 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 it's poignant that, Walter isn't around anymore mm. um, to to enjoy this this resurgence. Uh, but we get to see Walter enjoy being toasted um, toward the end of his life in the final scenes of this film anyway. So at least at least there's that. Um, so what about um did uh did you watch this with Soul? I did. Yes. Um, was she familiar who, with him? She was familiar with him. Yeah. I had also. I'm. I'm I guess. I don't know. I've never. Never seen. I feel like it's a, a face you would remember. Um, <laughs> I was not familiar at all. Yeah, yeah. I'm just familiar uh, with the, you know, Miss Cleo's, the Diane sure. uh, uh, Warwick. Diane Warwick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that we, we, who we see in this, we see some some old school Psychic Friends Network uh, ads. Mm-hmm. Very, very nostalgic. Uh, so coming into this totally cold with no idea who he was, uh, what was your impression? Um, I mean, I feel like I'm, I missed something. Uh, I missed something in, in my life. Uh, I think we often talk about like, what is a good documentary? And we, I think we tend to break it out into two things. Like one is like, what is a, a story that needs to be told, uh, and is told well. So like, what is good investigative journalism or good storytelling? And then the other one is like, what is a beautiful documentary? And I feel like this one covers both. It's both beautiful animations, trying to show Walter at his most glamorous while also, you know, being realistic about the fact that he was, what, like 87 or... 88. 88 when it was being filmed. Um, and then really telling end-to-end, again, as someone who was not familiar with him and his story, uh, I sort of cradled to the grave um, life story in a, a very coherent uh, and important way. There's He goes through conflicts in his life around uh, having bad management and uh, go, you know, rising to the top and then falling. And it's, it's done in a very, you know, linear um, and com- yet compelling way. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it felt kind of like the, the first act was just straightforward exposition of 
Walter's childhood and the story of how he, you know, came to be an actor in Puerto Rico. And then this sort of just happenstance uh, that led to him going on camera and talking about astrology <laughs> uh, and just this incredible way that it caught fire and uh, and then you know became this cultural phenomenon. The pivot in the second act into courtroom procedural was a little um, sort of like jarring. I thought just it, it really it throws off like the, the the mood and the tone of the energy of the film are so Walter's energy. And then it's this very jarring, harsh, like, oof, okay, now we're in like this very joyless legal battle. Mm. Um, and uh, which, you know, I guess in some ways is, in some ways helps you feel what Walter probably felt because it did mm. pull him out of this sort of beautiful um, bubble of just warmth and positivity. And uh, and then he, you know, really had to go through it to, uh, to try to fight for the right to use his own name, which is right. insane. Um, I was just reading an interview with the filmmakers and, they were talking about how they were able to track down um, Bill Bakula, who mm. was his manager. And um, and they were saying that they were like having spoken to him and having spoken to Walter, neither of them were ever willing to say anything negative about each other. Um, and they're like, so for us, we almost feel like, you know, we understand where Walter was coming from, of course. We understand where Bill was coming from. They're like, our blame goes with Walter's lawyer because mm. that was the person that they're like, they're like, as far as Bill understood, he was sending a contract over to a person that had a lawyer. Um, right. You know, he, he felt like this was just like, this was his opening negotiation. He was like, I would like all of this, please. Mm. And, you know, mm. and Ensemble perhaps was expecting Walter and his lawyer to come back and be like, okay, well, here's our counter. But instead this piece of shit lawyer was like, yep, looks good. Go ahead. Um, I mean, that makes so, sense. I think yeah. that that's a really good point. I think watching it just the way uh, Bill describes like what he wants and then knowing how they what they both agree what the contract said and how uh one-sided it was it's yeah. hard to imagine that like bill had any good intent and that it even without them blaming each other you know it, it seemed like well yeah but who would do that like that is clearly like a, a predatory contract but understanding that these things are in negotiation and that you're supposed to push back it, yeah. it, it, that does change it, it does change things that is a really good good point yeah, this and they and they were like in that lawyer we were not able to find. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> that person uh, is not uh, is not in the film to explain what the hell was going on, and how you know hungover they were that day or whatever that they weren't <laughs> able to actually properly see what was plainly written. Uh, you know that this was one of the most nightmarish contracts you could ever let your con your your client sign, and wow. yet that's what happened. Um, but it really is ultimately. You know, the movie is so inspiring, if only because it just just gives us so much undiluted Walter. Mm. And, you know, and he did refuse. He refused to let bitterness seep into him. You know, I feel like it'd be so difficult to go through what he went through and to not become bitter and angry. Mm -hmm. um, and he didn't. Uh, you know, he just didn't. He still chose to see the best in people and to give everyone love and light. Uh, and, uh, and that's, and that's incredible. Uh, you know, I, I did appreciate as, as, as irritated as I get whenever I see anybody branded an influencer show up in one of these movies. Uh, I did, I did appreciate the influencer at the end who was like, can you imagine Walter today? Like if it was like mm -hmm. a non-binary asexual, uh, astrologist, uh, Puerto Rican astrologist on Instagram, right. that would be, that would be like the entire world would stop and cater to that. Like that would just be the biggest thing ever. I mean, it's Julio uh, Torres. Was it? Yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah. Julio. He's not Puerto Rican, though, but... <laughs> right, yeah. Julio Torres is the closest that we have, I guess. Um, <laughs> um, uh, but, yeah, it's... And then, you know, the contextualization the documentary offers about just how remarkable it was that Walter was culturally permitted to succeed the way he did, mm -hmm. despite, you know, coming up at a, a, you know, in a time and place of rampant homophobia, uh, you know, sexism, all the all the things that Walter would be subjected to with his with his performance of gender. Uh, and yet he just he was his his purity, his purity and generosity of spirit just disarmed people. Uh, and, you know, and it's it's probably worth contemplating how things might have been different had he actually ever identified as gay 
or mm-hmm. had he actually like admitted to having lovers or anything like that, which it seems like he never did. So it's possible that he that he was to use that influencer's term asexual. Um, and, you know, that to him, it was just not anything he ever really sought out in life. It uh, seemed like it was it was a purposeful thing that there was a way of he, if he didn't say it um, out loud. They said there was like a, a uh, there's a saying. I don't remember what it is now, but it's like if if you don't say it, then no one can talk, talk about it or something like that. Um, right. And that he tried to, to keep himself out of that tabloid scene. And that that to me was probably one of the things about the movie that. I found slightly disappointing was that it felt like the filmmakers were really content to just not press him on those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I, of course I can understand if you are, and you're working with somebody who is almost 90 years old and you are creating what you realize will be a giant piece of their legacy. And I get that you don't want to make them like roll around in the dirt or whatever. Um, but you know, but those things shouldn't be viewed as rolling around the dirt. Um, but it felt like, he made it clear to them that he was going to preserve these pieces of his mystery um, as a persona. And they were like, fine, good, great. Mm-hmm. And did not, did not press him on it. Um, so, and that to me, you know, I guess it felt like I walked away from the documentary, not necessarily feeling like I understood much more beneath the surface about him. Um, you know, like so much of it is like, he's, he's always on, you know, he's always mm-hmm. like, you know, Every time he's there, he they're they're talking to him. He is giving you full Walter Mercado. It is there's never he's never like oh, okay anyway. So this this asshole, you know, like he is, <laughs> he is he, so uh, he is just always in character to the point where you're just like okay that is I, I I I give up. That is who you are. Like you are not putting on an act. This is who and how you are. But I think his his reluctance to go deeper into areas he didn't want to discuss and the filmmakers' reluctance to press him. I feel like are somewhat to the, the the detriment of the documentary. Hard, I don't know. Hard to say. I mean, maybe they did press him. Maybe it didn't get anywhere, and it, and and that's this is kind of what we have. Um, I feel like there's enough to tell without knowing that. I think that they explain a lot, having that that they explain a lot about why he chose not to, and you know he did what he said. They asked him if he was a virgin, and he was like, "Yeah, the only one in town," or whatever. <laughs> good long. So good. The conspiratorial look in his eyes. <laughs> Delight. Ugh. Incredible. Incredible. Uh, yeah, it was, I think this is, I'm, I'm, you know, this is one of those, one of those times where I appreciate, uh, you know, what Netflix offers in terms of being still generally regarded as, you know, the universal denominator of streamers, um, you know, that so, so, so many people have access to watch this documentary and to mm-hmm. learn about Mercado and to consider all the different um, sort of elements of his life and identity. And um, it's a remarkable, uh, it's a remarkable story. Uh, so I, I feel like, even though I feel like the structure of the film was a little off at times, and, and what I was just saying before about that it didn't exactly go too deep, uh, to me, I would still say it's a, it's a binge it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's just, it's wonderful to see Someone where, I don't know, I, I got caught up in his um, positivity and then being able to see him in front of people and real and realize again how much they still love him. And there's a scene of, the, of them going to the airport and everyone just stopping to take pictures and talk to him. And after having been through this period of time where he was like a hermit and out of the limelight and dealing with age and, and his body deteriorating, to be able to witness someone re-realizing how much the world loves him and how much people appreciate him and, and the things that he've done, he's done and that were difficult, um, you know, wearing capes and being fabulous. To witness that was just a wonderful feeling. And I think this is definitely a, a movie that we need right now. And his assistant trying to make him eat cookies to put some weight on. I was like, I need one of those. <laughs> Actually, I don't need anyone to tell me to eat more cookies. But uh, that was that was a beautiful moment, too. It was, yeah, beautiful film. Uh, also a binge it for me. Um, and it's streaming on Netflix also, and it is unrated, but probably a PG-13 for language and adult themes. Enough of the feel-good section of uh, the show. Let's move on to the horror half. Um, <laughs> starting with um, movie number one, which is <laughs> number three. Number one in the horror half uh, is The Rental. 
Two couples on an oceanside getaway grow suspicious that the host of their seemingly perfect rental house might be spying on them. Before long, what should have been a celebratory weekend trip turns into something far more sinister, as well-kept secrets are exposed and the four old friends come to see each other in a whole new light. The Rental uh, is a film by Dave Franco. Um, and we have Allison Brie and Dan Stevens again. <laughs> the, the king of your summer. King of my summer. Jeremy Allen White and Sheila Bond. Uh, and, you know, so it's this was Dave Franco basically made this movie because um, out of his own paranoia about Airbnb culture. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, in watching the movie, I feel infected by his paranoia. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, uh, I feel like, uh, yeah, I, it makes me very scared, uh, about Airbnb in general. And, uh, and yeah, I will be checking for cameras the next time I rent one. So, <laughs> uh, it is, uh, so it feels very, it's very savvy of him to have sort of seized on this this thing that's become just part of the cultural paradigm uh and hasn't yet been made the subject of this kind of you know concept of a horror film um the execution i don't know if it's perfect is there's almost two different movies going Mm. on uh in this and that could be intentional because uh you know the sort of abruptness by which the first movie ends um and uh, just in time for this very chilling kind of epilogue is sort of like you know that that could be you know on purpose uh you know horror movies have certainly played with that in the past where um you know the you're following a story and you're thinking that's the story and then that story kind of abruptly ends and that's another story um but uh but this one it really is kind of right to the end so it was a little a little a little uneven to me especially because the story that he's developing with these four characters is very richly written character wise mm. um you know like these are not this is not something like a you know psycho or scream where you have a character who you like barely are getting to know and then they're thrown into this situation um like we each each of the you know these characters and their dynamics uh the two guys are brothers uh and uh and jeremy white's girlfriend sheila vond is dan stevens business partner uh, and so they're all very connected to each other and, uh, and there are layers of sort of complexity and ambiguity to their connections. We get that, uh, Jeremy's character is sort of has an inferiority, inferiority complex compared to Dan Stevens character, who is more successful, who's more of a go-getter. Um, and we are also made aware from the first time we see them together hmm. that there could be some sort of sexual romantic tension between Dan Stevens and his brother's girlfriend slash his business partner. Um, even though Dan is married to Allison Bree's character, who is Dave Branco's real life wife. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and the way that these different dynamics play out, um, are, are really well done and incredibly well acted, um, by all four of them. And there's also a, a sort of an, an added layer uh, to this in the element of sort of racism and discrimination uh, because Sheila Vond, as the brother's girlfriend, uh, her character, like Sheila, is of Middle Eastern descent and has a name that she describes as Middle Eastern and had applied to get this Airbnb rental and was turned down. And then whenever, you know, uh, this guy with this white name uh, you know, Anglo-Saxon name reserves it and he gets it right away. And then there's this character introduced played by Tubby Huss, who's sort of like the caretaker of this beautiful beachside home. He and Sheila Vaughn's character start to clash right away. Uh, mm-hmm. What did you, how did you feel about that storyline? Um, I am disappointed that it didn't carry further into the movie. I mean, I guess it was just kind of, let's throw some additional layers in here to make it difficult to figure out what what exactly is going to be there are so many of these different like little moments of conflict between the characters that you're kind of wondering which one is the one that's going to take you to the end or going to be like more central to the film um it it felt it felt like an you know uh i think it was well played in that she had a very strong fully within her right uh, reaction to what happened and, and the way that um uh, the, the house the housekeeper 
is uh, responding and treating her. And then the way it's kind of like dismissed by the group as like, well, we just want to have fun and like, just let it go and don't push it too far. Like all that felt like, you know, very realistic and, um, and, and adding to the, the pressure and discomfort of the place. Um, but, but yeah, it seems like there were just a kind of like a lot of red herrings. So the fact that it kind of didn't go very far, um, was kind of disappointing. I would agree. I think that that's, that's part of what is, um, one of the things that doesn't totally work about this movie is that this movie that it starts off as is an interesting movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, like it's, it's not like there are a lot of horror films that, you know, where the characters that we know are basically cannon fodder, um, you know, are not given the degree of dimensionality, um, and complexity that, that, that this screenplay that Dave Franco co-wrote with Joe, uh, Joe Swanberg, who is sort of one of the greats of the mumblecore movement, um, they don't get that much uh, dimensionality. So, and I guess that, you know, in some ways, again, that could be the point that like, no matter how complex things are going in your life, it couldn't just be wham, bam, um, if, you, if you're a wrong time, wrong place. Right, um, right. But, uh, but given, given that it does last until really sort of like right before this epilogue, uh, you know, it, it does feel kind of shrug. This kind of like, okay, so that was all just, that was, the, that was it, okay, it feels like what I'm watching is pointless uh, uh, in that regard. And then ultimately it is in this, in this final epilogue becomes just, yeah, this kind of more, did you watch the credits? I did watch the credits. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, I I feel like I struggled with the same thing that you are where it's like part of me uh, respects and understands that it's like, yes, you know what people have had terrible, you know, not terrible, but like, you know, very rich and complicated lives. And then something comes and, and happens and, uh, and it, the, that doesn't mean that their lives were any less rich or interesting. And that doesn't mean that like uh, tragedy is any less random. However, it was still part of me that was watching a movie and like would, mm-hmm. would have hoped that like something would have added up. The first part is so ripe with four people going on like a weekend getaway. You and I know, uh, I think a year ago we were on a, a couples on a <laughs> trip. That thing when some people want to party the first night and then some people are tired <laughs> and other people want to party the second night and like getting that timed up right. Is, that felt so uh, relatable and so yes. real. I was like, yes, I'm always the one that wants to go hard the first night. I know you asshole. <laughs> Some people always want to wait, and I'm like, no, and I'm, I'm not going to be here. I'm like, guys, we had a plan. We said <laughs> we were going to rest the first night and rage the second night. That's when we're going to do our substances. But no, then there's the Rebecca's of the world who are like, we're here now. Let's go. Party. And I'm like, but I, I'm like, but I slept. Okay, <laughs> I was resting. No, I'm uh, too tired I... to go out tonight. Sorry, to... sorry, bud. <laughs> so yeah, once again, I was the Allison Brie. So those, there's very subtle things that are relatable. That the the like racial microaggressions, the uh, complicated sibling relationships, uh, complicated relationship with someone who has a, 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 a not, not so clear past about having infidelity issues, all for it to just kind of culminate yeah. in random, <laughs> random, and like the quickest. Things yeah. people just drop like flies in a in yeah. a second in this movie. Yeah, the slasherness of it really feels just very basic, but still effective. I mean, like that when the tension, I will say, you know, overall, I feel like Dave Franco has made a fairly auspicious directorial debut here. I feel like his, his sense of tone and frame are are, are incredible. Um, you know, the tension really does just ratchet and ratchet and ratchet up, um, and uh, to the point where you know, when it, it does feel all the more abrupt when the things happen at the end that happen, because they do happen very quickly and with very little like, well, that's over. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, it's so it feels like a bit of a letdown. With that said, the final act still did leave me very scared. Uh, <laughs> I, I watched this last night and I did feel very unsafe in my apartment afterward. So mm. I, I was definitely... I was definitely like looking at every corner of every doorway, just waiting for like a masked figure to emerge. Um, the masked figure is very, very upsetting. It is very upsetting. Um, although I will say this, the first time that you actually see the masked figure when they're walking through the woods and he pops up just behind them, mm. the score went to a hysterical place that it did not need to go. <laughs> 
The score gave you this insane, like, shriek of violins that I'm like, guys, you don't even need any music at all, like, for this moment. Like, it would be even scarier if there is no Mm. music to cue the audience that, like, oh, you should be scared right now. Like, guess what? They're already, like, we're scared. We don't need you to tell us that that's scary. Of course that's scary. (laughs) So I felt like the score betrayed the movie a little bit uh, uh, in in that part. But yeah, that guy was scary. Um, like shortly after I watched the movie, it was probably like after 10 30 or 11. And I like heard, um, the door underneath our apartment that goes into the basement, uh, which then to the basement goes out to that small court, uh, small sort of, um, patio, uh, that I frequently worry that anyone could just walk through. Mm-hmm. Uh, I heard it open and then slam shut. <laughs> and I heard, like, very heavy steps walking up the stairs outside of the apartment. And I was like, <sighs> okay. Oh, man. Here we go. Um, and then I was, like, going back and, like, making small talk with Scott, who, like, had no idea that I was, like, very, very scared. And then um, <laughs> I was, like, talking to him in the bedroom and then just, like, staring down the hallway at the front door, like, looking for some shadowy figure to, like, be illuminated against it. So the movie is effective in terms of the uh, the fear factor. I will give it that. Yeah, that really shows you with that uh, mass figure that when you're not expecting to be hunted, how easy it is to hunt a person. <laughs> yeah, almost too easy. Uh, were you were you um, were you nervous about the dog? Yes, from the beginning, it was just like this dog's not going to make it. Uh, <laughs> I was more upset when they were supposed to take care of the dog and then they didn't. Uh, that was just really upsetting. Otherwise, no. Nah. I don't know. I kind of felt from the beginning it was it was right. <laughs> bound to, were, to end unwell, not well. You were you were protecting yourself. You were like, okay, you're like you have some time to prepare. So <laughs> <laughs> just assume that dog is not even alive. That dog is dead. even <laughs> even that part of the movie where like you know they go to pick up his, um, Dan Stevens's brother and it's like you brought the dog. You weren't the, the thing yeah. said no. Like all those like like little things with that build the tension within the couples. We're supposed to watch the dog and then they don't. And then Alice and Bree's character is like, yeah, I called him because the thing didn't work. But there's like, it's just I know oof. you're just like you're like white girl. Fucking <laughs> like, <laughs> check your privilege. <laughs> you can't just call that guy right back up just like just because you want the fucking hot tub to work. Uh, <laughs> Poor her. Exactly. Yeah, that was yeah, that was that was hilarious. I will say the dog thing. I I, I did feel like okay, like they're going to make this into something where we're supposed to like be on the side of of these characters and their dog. But I'm like, as a rule follower, I'm already on the owner's side. I'm like, it says plainly in the rules, no dogs. If you bring a dog, then fuck you. You're in trouble, and you deserve what's coming to you. So I was automatically on the side of the owner of the property as soon as that dog situation came up. Yeah, I was. Uh, I was also that also made me very anxious. Uh, <laughs> all, all of the, the the human factor of the movie, you know, definitely made me the most anxious. From not being good party mates to bringing a dog when you're not supposed to, to like you know not defending someone in the couples having to talk to a race. Like everything was just like this is all making me so nervous. Yeah. And then it just kind yeah. of swoops in at the end. Um, what are you ra- rating this one? I feel like this one's a, a tough one to... It's. I would say it's a consume for me. Um, you know, I, I think that it is, um, you know, like it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's right down the middle. There are some things about that I think are really well done. Um, overall, I think it is very, it's also, it's, it's uneven. Um, I think Dave Franco almost sold his character short. Um, like maybe he... Uh, you know, when he was writing and he didn't imagine that the cast would bring it to life as well as they do. I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, but uh, but to me, it's ultimately uneven and kind of in some ways it feels pointless. Um, but it's very effective with the tension and the character development. And ultimately, the epilogue was was it left me creeped out of my mind. So. <laughs> um, so, yes, yeah, so I would give it a consume. Yeah, I think I think uh, we're we're really aligned on this one. Consume here as well. I understand, yeah, why there can be these two different movies within a movie, um, but that doesn't make it like any less unsatisfying. Right, um, disappointing. Yeah, uh, consume here. This one is VOD, available on Apple, Amazon, and Google, and rated R for violence, language throughout, drug use, and some sexuality. Our last movie, movie two from the horror half, is uh, Relic. A daughter, mother, and grandmother are haunted by a manifestation of dementia 
that consumes their family's home. Let's just cut right to this, Chase. This movie is about black mold and <laughs> nothing else. <laughs> That's it. Did you, were you, were you frantically scrubbing your shower between when you finished it and uh, when we started taping the show? The things that can affect you with, uh, with black mold, the way black mold can affect you is just it's terrifying. And this movie will really remind you how terrifying it is. If you take Rebecca's extremely literal interpretation of what you see in this movie <laughs> as, uh, as, as uh, the truth of the movie, then yes. Tell me what, I mean, it is, it is presented in a very literal way in that the first scene is, is the grandmother flooding the house, water everywhere. And then just, I mean, the fact that they don't address the mold issue off the bat, they come, they come to the house, the grandmother's been missing. Their daughter and granddaughter come to you know try to find her, see this black mold patches everywhere, and don't immediately say like, okay, once we find her, we're moving out of this house because it's toxic. I don't understand how they don't address it. <laughs> you can't make well, it that ob- that that literally obvious in the film and, and not. Well, you know, I would say obviously there are some aspects of the way this house is depicted in the film that are not meant to be strictly realistic. You know, uh, <laughs> I don't it, believe. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> it is, you know, it, it 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 sort of is increasingly a symbol of um of the grandmother who's played by uh, Robin Nevin, who is I guess like a, the the grand dame of Australian theater. Mm-hmm. Um, Robin Nevin's character, the grandmother, she is, you know, this she is she is unraveling, and um and this is a movie that never actually says the word dementia, like the word is never said, um but you are very aware watching it that that is what it's about. And, you know, this is a movie that's very much in the tradition of the Babadook and Hereditary uh, as, you know, horror movies that are about real, painful human experiences. Um, You know, and in this case, I would say, like, this movie deserves a big fat trigger warning um, for, you know, any person who has had to, who has lost someone to Alzheimer's and dementia. because it is it is very unsparing in the in depicting the horror that the uh, daughter and granddaughter are subjected to uh, as they are attempting to negotiate uh, this space and this very very difficult condition uh, that the grandmother is in uh, and the house feels like very much an extension of her mind uh, it is it is deteriorating it is shape shifting. Uh, it is turning treacherous on a dime. Uh, it is entrapping. Labyrinth. It, yeah, it is. Uh, you know, this is. Yeah, this is a movie sort of similar to um, the rental in the sense that it has a very sort of slow burn build where you certainly can feel the tension from very early on. Um, but it's very sort of judiciously metered out for the first two acts. Mm-hmm. But unlike. The rental, which kind of just just ends, um, you know, in a very sort of decisive slashery way. Mm-hmm. The final act of this movie, holy fucking shit! It is one of the most sort of just electrifying, harrowing sequences of events that I've seen in a very long time. And the place where it ends is so unforeseen. Mm. Um, and it's so imaginative and, and powerful, emotional, uh, it is, it's remarkable. This is, this is actually, this is a directorial debut, similar to Dave Franco. This is, uh, Natalie Erica James is the director of this film. It's her first film. And, um, and it is, I can't believe I can imagine this as a first film. It's, it's so assured. It's Mm. so bold. Um, and, you know, the performances from uh, Emily Mortimer of avian bone syndrome fame. <laughs> Seems like she's been cured of that. <laughs> Seems like she's a little better, yeah. Yes, <laughs> she, the way she gets knocked around this movie, if she still those brittle bones, uh, they, mm-hmm. they, wouldn't be, they wouldn't be holding up well. Uh, Bella Heathcote plays her daughter, and also an incredible performance, very sympathetic. You know, because, you know, bringing that sort of grandchild, grandmother sort of tenderness, mm. and then feeling all the more horrified. Um, betrayed betrayed by by witnessing her grandmother's deterioration and you know to look at her like a stranger and to attack her um it's yeah like this is not an easy movie to watch 
by uh, by any stretch. And and Rebecca, you were certainly uh, you were texting me as you were in that final stretch. That final stretch is brutal and it is disgusting. It is really graphic and a little scarred by how how gnarly it gets. I, I think it it is a very obviously very powerful analogy um, to dementia. The grotesqueness with which it's portrayed in the in or portrayed in the last uh, you know twenty minutes, ten minutes even. I don't know. It was a bit much. I wonder if it did a disservice to the analogy a bit, or if it like did detracted from it in in Mm -hmm. being so grotesque i did find myself questioning toward the end if it was in good taste uh to uh specifically when we get to that point you know where where we have this sort of well so the the director is um is half japanese and grew up in japan and was very influenced by japanese horror by j-horror um and that certainly comes through in Mm -hmm. some of the ways that we um in the ways that the grandmother is depicted um and uh, and it's been particularly in this final stretch with her movements um Mm -hmm. you know feels very much like the ring Mm -hmm. um and uh so that that did kind of caution me. But I think that what redeems it for me is when we have that final scene and we realize what this attack that she's been committing on her own body symbolized, mm. you know, that her body is now as much like her home is attacking her. Her physical form is attacking her and she wants to be free of it. And so when when that kind of came full circle in this shockingly tender and very sad final scene, um, then suddenly I was like, OK, so I feel like that gave it purpose and meaning beyond just like, oh, this is like gnarly depictions of like rotting skin and all these things. Right, um, right. You know, that to me uh, is what made it um, great instead of like exploitative. If I wasn't watching it for this, I don't know if I would have made it to the end. Mm-hmm. I may have turned it off. You have to get to that point to know that there's uh, a reason for it. And, and if you if you kind of just make up your mind when it starts to get pretty, uh, pretty gnarly, it could seem like it, it does a disservice. And like you said, it's in bad taste in, in the way that it's trying to portray this uh, very real human condition and the effects that it has on the people around you and on yourself. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I, I can see where you're coming from. Right. Well, and I think that, you know, there's more to this whole last act of the movie than what I know what you're alluding to uh, in terms of the sort of more difficult things to watch. I mean, there's an absolutely incredible sequence in which we're watching the granddaughter mm. um, negotiate this sort of this part of the house um, as it seems to be responding to her movements in real time. Mm-hmm. And it is breathtaking, like literally, like in the sense it's breathtaking in the sense it's amazing and breathtaking in the sense you feel like you can't breathe while you're watching it. Absolutely. Um, and uh, so it's it's incredibly bravura horror filmmaking. And uh, and yeah, there's certainly you know elements that are that are difficult to watch. And yeah, you just kind of have this is one of those things where you just have to trust the filmmaker that she these choices are intentional and she's not being a sadist. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she is she is these are all pieces of the entire puzzle, and that you kind of have to see it to the end to understand where it all clicks into place. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course with the understanding that this movie is not meant to be strictly a literalistic uh, story. You know, that it does operate in this more heightened magical realism zone um, where you know, our surroundings are connected to our mind and things are reacting and changing and moving, and deteriorating. And when you're pulled into it, it starts to affect you as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's definitely, it's a, you know, it's a massive downer uh, as a horror film. Oh, absolutely. Um, and uh, even right down to like the actual sort of last uh, shot, uh, yeah. you know, that we see. Um, but, you know, I think that it's, so I think you, you you just know whether or not you can handle this. Like, you know, having heard this review, you you know, if you have sensitivities around the subject matter, then I then you know that you just shouldn't watch this. Um, 100%. But, uh, but, uh, but, you know, some, I was reading some today that somebody was like, it, you know, it was actually very cathartic uh, sure. to watch, you know, because it could also, uh, you know, sort of by taking, you know, this horror and sci-fi and all these genres kind of are, are about, right? It's like taking these elements of the human experience and creating this sort of this, this, this fantasy depiction of it that allows us to approach it from a safe distance mm-hmm. and to sort of get closer to it than we would want to in our day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so all in all, um, I just thought it was beautiful and incredible. And uh, it's my pick of the month or pick of the week. And so it's wow. it for me. Yeah. Uh, right, it can be more different from the rental, where the horror is so uh, disconnected from the characters and what they're going through. And here it is is—it is what the characters are going through that is the horror of it. Hard for me to pick this one as uh, as the pick of the week. Uh, what is the pick of the half week, half month? Is that what you're calling it? <laughs> no, we, can, we can just say week. <laughs> I, I know the old guard is your pick of the week, and, that's, and, that's, and I, I respect that. Cool. Okay, great. Wonderful. I mean, both, you know, both pretty equally graphic. Yeah, this is a heartbreaking movie. It does portray the helplessness and confusion and the gaslighting that nature does to us and we do to each other um as a result it's tragic i can i can understand your pick of the week but i, I guess i'm gonna have to go with um tough one <laughs> i have to go with the consume fair enough they just don't address that black mold <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i think that was um i watched this with bethine um where we were just on the speakerphone with each other watching it simultaneously and, uh, and I think she said something similar along the lines of just like, why are they not addressing these, these wet stains on the walls? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, it's, a, it's a practical concern to have. 
Um, do all the movies uh, this week, except for maybe Mucho Mucho More, uh, all pass the Bechdel test by a lot? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think Especially the old guard. I don't know if the rental does. The rental. I don't mm. know if, talk, if, the, if the women ever really talk about anything other than the guys. Yeah, you're right. The, re- the rental doesn't. Relic, yeah. definitely. The guard and Relic are definitely. Yeah, I mean, Relic has like no men. <laughs> there's, just, there's just no men in the movie. Right. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, we should also probably, I was thinking that we should, did you watch the, uh, since you're talking about Emily Brillbone's Mortimer, did you watch the Dirty Rock reunion episode? I did. Yes, I did. That was a delight. That really was a delight. Oh yeah, we were texting about it. That's right. Uh, mm. <laughs> so I apologize for what I tweeted about Milana. Uh, <laughs> and I think once again, we agree, Jenna Maroney, best yeah. character on television ever. And the, the sort of the joyless symphony of reviews all being like, yeah, it's an ad. Or just like, so what? Yeah, oh, it's an ad. So what? It was an ad. Who gives a fuck? Like, was it funny? Yes. Like, did it did it resurrect the humor of Thirty Rock? Was it true to the characters? Did it give us new laughs? Did it respond to the moment? Yes, 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 yes. Hundred percent. Big fan. <laughs> it was wonderful. Yes. So just our own little mini review because I know some of our listeners also are big Thirty Rock fans. Uh, so uh, yes. So Rebecca and I also give that episode. I give it a binge. It definitely give it a binge. It is exactly what we needed. Um, and I was totally happy with it being uh, an ad. That's how it's <laughs> how it's always been. Yeah. All right, exactly. You know, it's just like Jack Donaghy says, you know, uh, you know, TV shows are just, uh, you know, space between car commercials. So <laughs> what are you going to do? Uh, uh, Veronica Forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, where can we watch Relic? Uh, Relic is also, thanks, thank you, uh, a VOD available on Apple, Amazon, and Google, rated R, uh, for some, uh, horror, violence, disturbing images, and language. Well, that's it. That's it. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. Um, be sure to subscribe uh, on uh, iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Jason is on Twitter at... Excess Faggage. Matt Fight Balance. Thank you so much for listening. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason. You made it to the end. That's amazing. There goes the binge. binge.